can be seated. So last week we started to look at the book of Hebrews together and saw it open with a grand, exultant vision of Jesus. We saw him described as the definitive word of God spoken to us, as the creator of all that is, of the heir of the cosmos, as the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of God's being, the forgiver of sins, and the ruler over everything in the universe. And we stood in awe of Jesus together and how awesome Jesus is. This week, we're going to respond in the same way, but for entirely different reasons. These two together offer an incredible and important vision of Jesus, a remarkable and beautiful picture. But before we turn our attention to listen to these words of Scripture, I want to invite you to pray that God would open our ears and our eyes in order to take it all in. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we open our Bibles together now, we pray that you would speak, that your spirit would again be at work to give life to these words, and that you would open then our ears and minds and hearts to receive the word that you have for each of us, so that, Lord, in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, And in your way, find peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that breathes life. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one that makes holy and the ones that are being made holy all have one Father, so that Jesus was not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters when he said, I will publicly announce your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the middle of the congregation. He also says, I will trust in him. And also, here I am with the children whom God has given to me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also shared in the same things in the same way. He did this to destroy the one who has power over death, the devil, by dying. He set free those who've been enslaved all their lives through their fear of death. Of course, he didn't do this to help angels, but rather to help Abraham's descendants. Therefore, he had to be made like them in every way. And he did this so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and offer a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he was tested by what he suffered, he's able to help those who are being tested. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What we find in this second chapter of Hebrews is something of God's plan to save the world. That in order to bring many children to glory, Jesus did three things. He was made human, he suffered, and he died. He became human, he suffered, and he died. For some of us, this is going to seem like going back to the basics this morning, but there is nothing basic about this, and none of us are beyond it. What we have in these passages is a source of great wonder and awe and one of the most powerful and beautiful things in all of creation, that Jesus becomes human, suffers, and dies. First, becomes human. We hear in this passage that we become brothers and sisters of Jesus and that we share a common father in God because Jesus becomes our brother, because Jesus takes on our flesh and blood and is made like us in every way. In theology, we call this the incarnation, incarnate. God becomes flesh, takes on flesh, enters into flesh and blood. And in the church, we believe two things about Jesus that seem to be at odds with each other at first, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That he's not 50% God and 50% human, or 99% human and 1% God, or the other way around, but fully God and fully human. And we believe that because that's what the Bible seems to say over and over again, not because it makes sense in our minds, but because when we look at Jesus, we see one who is fully human and also fully God. Last week's passage we found that Jesus is not just another prophet, that he's not just a moral example for us or a great teacher, that he's not even one in line with the angels, the messengers of God, but is in fact the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of God's being, that he is God in all of God's divinity. And then this week we have a passage where we see Jesus described not as a spirit who pretends to be human, but one who is fully human, flesh and blood made like us in every way. And because it's hard to wrap our minds around how one can be fully God and fully human, there's, there's a lot of creative heresies that have popped up in the church over the years trying to make sense of how you split up the cookie to make sense of Jesus. One is called docetism, that I think this is trying to speak against, this passage. It's the, the belief that Jesus just appeared to be human. And then on the cross, he just appeared to suffer, but didn't actually. It was all kind of like a, like a trick. He's a, you know, one of the great magicians or illusionists. Because how could God suffer? And why would God want to take on filthy, weak human flesh like ours? And yet in its face, the church has declared fully God, fully human. Another creative one was Apollinarianism. You don't have to know how to say that word. It said, okay, well, Jesus has human flesh, but he had to have had a divine mind. Otherwise, how could he know what he knew? How could he do what he did? He must have had a divine mind. 
And in response to that controversy, one of the the church fathers in the fourth century in Greece, Gregory of Nazianzus, who shaped the Christian tradition uh, deeply, who fingerprints are all over the Nicene Creed that we'll say after the sermon. Um, We're not going to say the Apostles' Creed. We're going to say the Nicene Creed, partly because of this connection. Gregory of Nazianzus said this, which became something of a maxim for theology. That which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. That which God doesn't take into himself in Jesus cannot be healed or redeemed in Jesus. So if Jesus doesn't actually take on a human body, how can Jesus heal and redeem human bodies? If Jesus didn't take on a human mind, how could he heal and redeem a human mind. If he didn't take on everything that it is to be human, if he wasn't fully a man, how could he redeem humanity? How could he take it up and fulfill it for us finally? Fully human, flesh and blood, like his brothers in every respect. And so, as we sang earlier, who is like the Lord our God? who sits enthroned above in glory, who made everything that is, that everything exists for him and through him. And yet he comes down, empties himself, takes on flesh, becomes a weak and vulnerable human being, like us in every way. And not because he has to. It's not a a momentary concession or defeat that he fixes later after the resurrection. This is choice. This is part of God's very being. As it says in here, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he has chosen to become one with us and one like us in every way. And this becoming human is not just for the sake of empathy, that God can sort of identify with us and and feel with us and know what it is to be human. It's not just about becoming our ally, which brings us to the second thing Jesus did. Becomes human, takes on flesh and blood, and then suffers. It was verse 10, right where we began. It was fitting for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, in bringing many children to glory, to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. In bringing many children to glory in order to to save all of humanity, God makes the pioneer of our salvation, the one who will go before us, who will explore the way, who will find and carve a path out through the rainforest of the world, who will guide and shape what it is for us to come to God and be saved for God to make that pioneer perfect through suffering. And that word pioneer in in Greek can also be hero. And there is a sense that he's being cast as a Greek hero in the line of Hercules and Perseus and the others, the one who would rise up and be victorious and triumphant, and yet his victory and the perfection of this hero comes by suffering. Why? Why? Why in suffering? In suffering, he's made perfect. And perfect not in a moral sense, but in the sense of complete, whole, 
Because what it is to be human isn't just to have flesh and blood. He had to live a human life as well. He had to experience a human life and all that that is. And human life involves great suffering. In our modern world, we can keep suffering at an arm's length for a while, but it has a way of seeping back in. Our lives are defined by suffering. And in many ways, one of the great questions for humanity is, why does that suffering exist? Why does evil exist? Especially for those of us who claim faith, how can we pretend to believe in a benevolent and all-powerful God when there is such great evil and suffering in the world? As far as I'm aware, all the other religions that exist offer a variation on the same answer to that question. And I think the clearest version of that is, is the answer of karma, right? You know karma. We love karma when something good is happening to us because it means that we deserve it because we did something great. We love it when someone else does something bad to us and they're getting what they deserve because of it as well. Where karma breaks down is when we're suffering. Because karma's answer is that you did something to deserve it. Might have been in a past life, might have been in this one, but whatever evil you're experiencing in life is the universe is balancing itself out. My brother-in-law is a pediatric oncologist back in Michigan, and he's given his life to helping save children with cancer and blood disorders. That answer doesn't really work in that setting. You're telling me all of them are there because of something they did, that they deserved it somehow. Christianity does something different. In the face of suffering, Christianity, what Christianity does, or what Christianity is, is the God for whom and through whom all things exist, stepping down and entering into the suffering of the world, coming down to experience human life in all that it entails, to come and suffer, to identify with us and stand beside us, even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the darkest darkness, even in the deepest of pits, in all that it is to suffer and lose and mourn and grieve. But not just to stand beside us in it. Not just to identify with us and say, yeah, I know what that's like. But to do something. And that's how we get to the third piece. Jesus becomes human, flesh and blood like us in every way, that Jesus suffers and Jesus dies. Verse 14, if you have your Bible still open, um, says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also shared in the same things in the same way. That's nice, right? It becomes like us, you know, to be with us, to know what it is to be our life. That's nice, uplifting, seemingly. God loves us that much that he comes. He did this to destroy the one who holds power over death. Well, that sounds great too, right? He comes to be with us, comes to enter into the world, into human life, to destroy the one who holds power over death, the devil, by dying. To set us free from fear of death, to destroy the one who holds power over death, he dies. How does that work? 
Well, Christians have come to understand it from a lot of different angles and using a lot of different metaphors, but Hebrews 2 offers us two of those metaphors. The first one is uh, the, the metaphor of a hero or a liberator. Um, as the story is sort of told here, we get this picture of Jesus disguising himself, sneaking into the slave camp, and liberating the captives from the inside out. Like Moses going down into Egypt to bring the people out of slavery, he disguises himself, sneaks into the world, sneaks all the way down into hell in order to jailbreak from the inside out. And Gregory of Nyssa, who was friends with Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, had this beautiful metaphor to talk about it. And something like this was actually quite common in the early church. It, it was a fishhook metaphor. So he said, the devil could not come into direct contact with God without being destroyed, like darkness disappears when light shines. And so Jesus decides to cloak himself in flesh. He becomes human to disguise himself and to deceive the deceiver. And so like a ravenous fish, the devil sees Jesus, his eyes grow wide, and he gulps him down whole. He thinks that he has won, that he has defeated him, had a wonderful meal, but what he doesn't know is that beneath the flesh of the worm is the hook of God's divinity, and that he has been caught, and that it is over. That light now shines in the very heart of darkness, that life has come into the midst of death, that his power has been destroyed, and that God has won. The hero, the liberator who has come, stormed into death itself to destroy the devil and his power over us. The image is that the devil is our slaveholder, his whip is the fear of death, and he has held us captive our whole lives long until Jesus comes and breaks the whip and beats the devil and sets us then free. A whole sermon could be preached on that line about being held in slavery our entire lives to the fear of death we have been set free of that fear. I did a committal yesterday up in the cemetery here, and in that liturgy we say, in dying Christ destroyed our death, and in rising Christ restores our life. In every single baptism that we do, we say that we have been buried with Christ in his death and raised to share in his resurrection that we have already died so that we can sing with Paul, where, O oh, death, is your sting? For it has no power over us, and the fear of death no longer holds us. We have been set free. Hero, liberator, is the first metaphor we get here. The second one is uh, sacrifice of atonement. So it says, uh, and there, there's a theme throughout Hebrews that casts Jesus as the great high priest. And this is where it begins to get developed. We'll talk about it in the weeks to come. But it says that Jesus has to become like his brothers and sisters in every way, this is verse 17, so that he can become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to offer the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. So Thursday was a really important holiday. Anyone remember what Thursday was? Yom Kippur, um, a very important holiday for our Jewish neighbors. Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. Yom, Day, Kippur, covering atonement. 
And on the Day of Atonement, back when the temple existed, back in Jesus' time and before it, that was the one day in which the high priest, so there's a bunch of priests, but there's one high priest over all of them. The high priest and the high priest only is allowed on that one day and one day only to go into the Holy of Holies, the very center of God's temple in Jerusalem, where God's glory is said to dwell on top of the Ark of the Covenant that's there. The top of the Ark of the Covenant is called a, a kaporet, which is related to the word kippur, covering and atonement. And on top of it, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know there's the two angels and the wings outstretched, and they touch each other. And right where the two sets of wings touch is where Scripture says the glory of God dwells in the temple. That that is the, the hilasterion in Greek, the, the mercy seat, the throne of God in the world is right there in the Holy of Holies. And on that one day and one day only, the high priest can enter into that space and they tie a rope around his waist and put a bell on him so that if God strikes him down as he enters God's presence because he comes uh, as an unworthy servant, they can at least drag his body back out without having to go in themselves. And he goes in after offering the sacrifice, and they sprinkle blood right on that spot, on the covering of the altar, on the place where God's glory dwells over those angels' wings, to make a covering for the sins of the people, to make atonement for their sins, to cover over all the sin in the nation like a freshly fallen blanket of snow, to wipe it all clean. And that word atonement that we get into English is actually just a made-up English word. When they were translating the Bible over 500 years ago into English for the first time, they had to come up with a word to say this. So they took at one mint and they put it together and made atonement. At one mint, brought together, united, that which had been ripped apart by sin is finally united together again fully. Us and God brought back together atonement. And that sacrifice was offered year after year after year. And there were other sacrifices for sin offered day after day after day. But when Jesus Christ, the great high priest, enters into the service of God to offer the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, Jesus doesn't offer that sacrifice day after day, night after night, year after year, but once and for all. Because the sacrifice that he offers is himself. He is the lamb without blemish, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the once and perfect sacrifice finally, giving himself as the truly human one who is perfect and has fulfilled the covenant on our behalf. He offers himself up to God to cover over our sins. Our sins were forgiven that day on the cross so many years ago. And if our sins have been wiped clean, then there is no longer any fear of death. And it holds no power over us any longer. Because when God looks at us, and on that day when we stand before God in the final judgment, when God looks upon us, God will not see the laundry list of sins that stretch out behind us. Our brokenness and our failures will not be the things that define us. But when God looks at us, God will see Jesus covering over God will see the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, his perfect righteousness, his truly, fully human life will be what defines us. As the truly human one, he can take our place in this sacrifice. As the perfect human one, he can satisfy all the requirements. 
And because he is fully God, he is a ransom infinitely larger than the price owed by all of humanity. This Jesus is our brother. Not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He is the pioneer who shows us the way into salvation. He is the one who suffers with us and for us who joins us in that suffering and the testing of life. He is the one who dies to destroy death and its power over us, to set us free from its fear once and for all, our liberator and our helper. And all because he loves you. Because he loves you. In Bible study this week, someone responded, and I had to quickly scratch it down. They said, forget the world. I've got someone who cares for me. Forget the world and all of this. I have someone who loves me. Not because of anything I did or will do, not conditionally, not with limits, Someone loves you this much. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that remarkable? And so we gather week after week to offer our lives in worship and in praise to this one. Not because of what we get out of worship. Not because of what's done in us or how we feel in this space. But because such a one exists for whom and through whom all things were made. And yet he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, to step down into suffering and death alongside us, to raise us back to God. What else do we do but worship? So let's do that. We're going to sing in Christ alone in a minute, but as they come up here, let's pray. Lord, we bless you because we don't know what else to do in response for what you have done for us. You are the one who has come to set us free from death, not just to make us a little bit better, not to be an example for us, not to be a messenger from God, but to set us free from death and its fear, to raise us again to be children of God to bring us to glory in your own flesh and blood and life. Lord, keep us ever in awe of the basics of our faith, that you are fully God and fully human, for us always, and open our hearts to sing your praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.